Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Today, I have one of our awesome and amazing speech retreat speakers, Carrie Ebert, talking all about play. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So in case people are living under a rock or haven't heard of you, tell everyone a little bit about you and your SLP journey up to now. Sure. Well, my name is Carrie Ebert. So Sorry I'm about like that. that. That's all right. <laughs> good. We're good. No, it's good. And I've been a speech language pathologist for 26 years. Over two decades of that have been working in early intervention. And I specialize in that birth to three population, uh, autism and apraxia. Those are my real real passions. I'm a huge proponent of play-based learning. And so I'm really excited to be able to present at Speech Retreat and talk a little bit about what autistic play is all about and looking at play skills in our neurodivergent learners. Thank you so much because I know many of us went to graduate school learning one way of doing things and things have changed tremendously. Like this year alone, I feel like it has been really brought to surface by the autistic community. So tell a little bit about one, why is it so important that SLPs are aware of the differences in play? Yeah. So I guess one thing I I do want to kind of um, disclose to you guys is I'm a parent of an autistic child. So 
not only am I a speech language pathologist who supports families and, and children, but I also have an autistic child myself. And so he is now 17. And gosh, he has taught me an awful lot about my profession. Uh, he's taught me an awful lot about how to kind of unlearn all the stuff that I was taught in grad school. Uh, and, and because it just didn't feel right in my mom and gut. And so it's been really interesting. I always say the pandemic kind of brought with it Oh, I don't know if there is a silver lining. It's that I was basically unemployed. I didn't, as a professional speaker, I didn't travel for 570 days. I counted them. Uh, It was a really long time to be essentially unemployed. And so I spent all of that time listening, listening to autistic adults, listening to autistic voices, and really trying to better understand what our role is because I think the way most of us were trained, granted, there are some younger uh, SLPs uh, listening, but a lot of us, uh, I graduated from grad school in 1995, and I was trained under the medical model of disability, which was really that our job was to fix deficits, right? Was to give standardized tests, look at neurotypical norms, developmental norms, and determine what the child couldn't do, and then go in and teach them those isolated skills out of context so we could check that off of a developmental milestone checklist. And what we understand now is that autistic children uh, develop differently from neurotypical children. And it's not wrong. It is simply different. And so we have to really understand that autistic individuals learn differently communicate differently, interact and relate with others differently. They certainly play differently. And so, you know, they experience the world differently. They process sensory input differently. So for us as professionals, it's about being able to look at an autistic child, autistic student, autistic client, where depending on what setting you work in, and really start looking at their strengths start looking at their interests and start figuring out what service do we provide? What kind of goals can we write that will help that neurodivergent child become the most successful version of themselves possible? Not how can we teach them to act like neurotypical kids on our caseload. So for me, it's been a huge journey of unlearning everything that I was pretty much taught in grad school. Do you feel the same way? Uh, totally. That I mean, I learned the same way, like give the standardized test, mm-hmm. whatever they couldn't do, teach it. Right. Right. And we would write goals for it. We would literally write. So my son, when he was three years old, his first speechy goal on his first ever IEP was that Aaron would identify pronouns in pictures with 80% accuracy. And I just laughed because at age three, Aaron had really no form of uh, reliable communication at all. When Aaron was first, my son was first diagnosed, AAC was considered a last resort. It was nothing you would ever consider doing with a toddler. You know, it was like one of those things, well, let's wait and see. And if, you know, he's older and he's not talking, we might consider it. But I know exactly where that pronoun goal came from, the preschool language scale, the PLS3. I remember that version so well. And there was a a page of that assessment had a, a picture of stairs. And on the stairs, on one set of stairs, there were roller skates. Who even knows what rollers, you know, I mean, such a funny picture. On the second set of stairs, there was a picture of a girl. And on the third set of stairs, there were like a bunch of kids going up the stairs. And the examiner gave the instruction, show me she is on the stairs. And I, I of course, wasn't allowed to observe that initial evaluation. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that if my son responded at all, 
that he would have understood the word stairs and he maybe would have touched. He certainly didn't have the the point um, established yet, but he maybe would have touched the pictures of the stairs. But I'm telling you to ask him, show me she is on the stairs. That went, I'm sure, right over his head. And so for them to write a goal that he would identify pronouns in pictures from that assessment, it's just so illogical. But that's how we were trained, right? Mm-hmm. And is that the most functional thing for him at that moment in his life? Is not identifying pronouns in pictures, pictures, like of all things on the planet to focus on. So it has been, like I say, I feel like for those of us who are, um, we won't say old, we'll say seasoned, who have been- Veterans, in- us veterans. Yes, us veterans. Oh, I like that term, us veterans. Um, we really have to spend some thoughtful time on learning and having that willingness to relearn under a different model of you know providing supports and services. So, so true. And for those that are seasoned veterans, but also the new ones who are still learning how to work with this population in general, let's first like rewind. What are some things that we think of when it comes to neurotypical play? Well, I think with neurotypical play, we have this idea that children will play with toys the way they're intended to be played with, meaning they'll stack blocks and they'll roll a ball and they'll, you know, stir a, 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 you know, a toy pot with a toy spoon. So I think we have this idea that children will play with toys in what we would call expected ways, right? That's, that's a pretty neurotypical skill. I think we also look at things like time on task and the ability to switch gears. Like, oh, they play with toys for an appropriate, I love that term, for an appropriate amount of time, you know, like who's what? deciding, <laughs> yeah, who's deciding what appropriate is, right? Um, we look at um, willingness to play with a play partner, meaning an adult should be able to, you know, we, we have this idea that adults should be able to sit down and join in a child's play and the child should be thrilled to have us in their world. So those are some of the main things that I think of with, you know, neurotypical play. And so the issue is when we go in with these preconceived notions of what play should look like and we write goals and then we are actually supporting an autistic child or a neurodivergent child, we definitely run into some brick walls, don't we? When we, we have these neurotypical expectations for how the child will play. So true. And if you've been following these autistic voices and autistic advocates that have been surfacing over the last year plus, we know that we can't be trying to change Mm -mm. their ways. We need to go with their interests. So can you give an example of how a therapy session might go when you are doing child-led therapy and using their interests? You bet. So I just did a session. Um, I actually do in, an intensive with a family that lives in Mississippi. So I live in Kansas City, Missouri. So I spend two weeks a year with them. They were actually just here for a week last week. And then I go in February and I spend a week there. So anyways, I was there in Mississippi a while ago. And I actually went to the clinic where this little guy gets his his therapy. And they were really struggling with his quote unquote behaviors, right? Because he was non-compliant in speech therapy. He wasn't doing in occupational therapy too. He wasn't willing to do like the plan. You know, we kind of have this play plan in place for therapy, right? So we're going to do X and then Y and then Z and this little guy, his real focused interest as is common in many young autistic children is letters. He loves the alphabet and um, has a, a very deep interest in it. So they had told me that they hide all the alphabet puzzles and all the alphabet books because he fixates on them, right? So because he fixates on them, they were putting them away. So, and then they locked the cat 
the cabinets in this therapy room. So this little guy was coming in and he knew exactly where the puzzles were kept. He knew exactly where, you know, the books were kept. So he's pulling on these locked cabinets and just going, I mean, he's very upset. And so they were like, we just don't know how to move forward from this because if we give him those things, he will just quote unquote fixate on them. So I asked if I had permission to just kind of do child-led play, child-led therapy session. And they said, okay, but I, you know, this is not how we do things here. So anyways, they unlocked the cabinets and I allowed him to get out what he wanted. So he got out that alphabet puzzle and he immediately, you could just see him regulate, right? He immediately gets calm. So he is taking out the letters and I got close to him sitting on the floor and he moved away because he's used to adults like taking it and then making him say something for it, you know, making him earn. So I just needed to earn his trust. So I just got to a distance, you know, where I could be in in close proximity to him. And I would just comment on what he was doing, not ask questions and not tell him to, you know, give him any instructions whatsoever. I was just using declarative language and just making comments. And pretty soon, I mean, it didn't take long before all of a sudden this child is really initiating joint attention with me because now he's showing me the letters and he's wanting me to label them. And so then what I'm able to do is expand. So he would pick up, you know, a letter and I would just say like, if it was a D and I'd be like, oh, D like Dada, like daddy. And then he would kind of look at daddy and he'd look at the D and he'd say D for daddy. So we're getting this. I mean, he's very much using some echolalia, if you will. He's got some scripts going on, but it, it allowed me to kind of take his interest of letters and build from that, build off his interest instead of saying, no, 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 we're not going to talk about letters. I mean, I could, t- I could give you example uh, after example of with my own son and how he taught me over the years follow his lead. You you got to focus on connection over instruction. To me, that's my biggest advice for any, any therapist. You've got to uh, focus on the connection first. And so I'm a huge believer in relationship-based learning, right? Let's establish the relationship because once interacting with you becomes a preferred activity for the autistic child, joint attention won't be an issue anymore. We try to force joint attention. We try to force eye contact. You can't force that. You cannot force a desire to interact with another person. So we need to stop trying to force it and allow it to organically unfold. And the way that happens is through child-led play where there is an emphasis on their interests and we're building off of their strengths and their preferred way of communicating. What do we do with neurotypical kids? We quiz them. What color is it? What shape is it? How many are there? What does a dog say? What does a cow say? That does not work with neurodivergent learners, right? It just shuts them down. For many kids, that type of imperative language where you're giving directives and where you're asking test-like questions, that will send them into fight or flight mode because what it does is triggers the stress hormone, right? And the minute we have associated therapy with stress, then that means those stress hormones are flowing and and we're never going to get anywhere. So it's all about the relationship. I think our neurotypical students could also benefit from the same strategies. They don't like it when we quiz them either. We don't like to be quizzed. Nobody does. I don't know anybody who likes to, you know, be quizzed or be told what to do, um, especially for like an hour straight or for 45 minutes straight. So, yeah, That's it really is challenging for them. It's yeah. already challenging. And now you're quizzing me on something yeah. I don't know. Right, right, right. Yep. So focus on on the connection, focus on the relationship. And to me, that's that's one of the the key components of neurodiversity affirming therapy is focusing on the relationship focusing on connection, using co-regulation to kind of support 
uh, self-regulation in the child, right? Model and be calm. Be who the child needs you to be. Basically, that's like what it is. Be who this particular child needs you to be. My personality tends to be one that's extremely animated and um, I make amazing you know, sound effects and I'm a little over the top. And I will say a lot of neurotypical kids really enjoy that and they seem to benefit from that approach. But I will tell you a lot of kids, especially um, kids who have sensory differences, who maybe have auditory over-responsivity, um, they get very startled by that approach. So I have had to learn how to be the person the child needs me to be, be the, the play partner the child needs me to be, not be who I am, like, just spontaneously. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Totally. We need, a, we need a one look at their behavior as communication, and we mm-hmm. can't just go in with a plan, stick with it. We have to be no. flexible. We have to go with their what they need. Yeah. Yeah. To me. And I love this. And I know it's kind of like, um, I think of it as the therapy dance. And I think this is true with any relationship. It's the ebb and flow. So I feel like as therapists, I think teachers do the same thing. We push in an attempt to create healthy challenges so that we can teach new skills. Fair to say. So we push, but we have to be able to know when to pull back. So it's this beautiful ebb and flow, like the waves of the ocean. And to me, this is what a highly skilled clinician can do is they know when to push and they know when to pull back and repair the relationship. Relationship. And then once the relationship is solid, they push forward a little bit, focusing on strengths, focusing on interests. And then when they sense, it's this, it's, it's, you have to sense it before the challenging behavior comes out, right? You have to sense, you have to know that the child's body language changes, that they start, you know, you start losing that attention, that focus, whatever it is, and then you have to pull back. So if we, and I wish it was easy to teach, like when you have new grad students or whatever, you know, um, trying to teach the ebb and flow, I don't think it's an easy thing to teach. I think it's about attunement. It's being in tune with your client and knowing when to push forward and knowing when to pull back and repair. Because I always say you're always doing one of two things in a therapy session. You're always either teaching a new skill or you're repairing the relationship, teaching a new skill, repairing the relationship. And it's being able to balance that. And I find many new clinicians are so worried about their plan that they're not focusing on the child in front of them, right? Children in front of them, where it's like, okay, stop focusing on your script or Mm -hmm. what you have in your bag of tricks and look at what's going on in front of you and be okay with it not being okay. I think the best way to become a relationship-based therapist is to not actually have a plan to take in, like as an early intervention provider, we used to take in a bag of toys, right? So that was my lesson plan. I would pack a potato head and I would pack Play-Doh and I would pack bubbles and I would you know, pack two books in a puzzle. So I knew exactly what I was going to do. So when we moved away from the bag of toys, we moved more into parent coaching, routines-based intervention. So I have no therapy plan. When I go to a session with a child, I am just showing up and I allow the child and the family to take the lead. And I'm telling you, nothing makes you a stronger therapist than having no therapy plan in place, right? So you have to know what your goals are, right? What are you focusing on? And you have to be flexible enough to be able to embed those goals into absolutely any interaction. And that is the beauty of speech language pathology. I mean, seriously, you can focus on our goals during any interaction at all. And that's to me what's so wonderful. We don't have to set aside special time to work on talking. We don't have to set aside special time to work on communication or whatever, because every interaction is, you know, between two people. So it's, it's beautiful. I agree. And this applies even to older students. I had a student in that was 12 years old and the teachers in the classroom were trying to get compliance and there was a lot of behavior and it didn't work. They were struggling. Meanwhile, in my room, I had zero plan each and every time he came into my room, I let him 
pick out the toy he wanted. I knew exactly what he was going for, but I allowed him to go in, request, like ask mm-hmm. for it and mm-hmm. get it. And we went from there and I had zero behavioral issues in my speech room because I let him leave. Right. You know, one thing that I think about a lot is we work one-on-one or perhaps in a small group with most of our kids. I think about teachers struggling when they have a whole classroom of kids. And how do we do, I get that a lot from teachers asking me, how do I do child-led? How do, you know, I don't know how to do that when I have a curriculum that has to be followed. And so I think we have work to do in how to create a classroom learning environment that is appropriate for neurodivergent learners. Because I do quite a bit of consulting with school districts and um, usually the early childhood classrooms, kindergarten, first grade is really, you know, where I spend my time. And I see that our curriculum is set up for neurotypical learners. Curriculums are not set up for neurodivergent learners. And so we've got all these kids with so-called behavior problems, right, where we need to modify their behaviors when in actuality, the problem is we're not teaching the way they learn, right? We don't have an established relationship. And so it is very hard to teach new skills, challenging skills, if we don't have that connection with the child. So I think there's still some work to be done. Definitely, especially utilizing the other staff in the room. There's so okay. usually, usually there's more staff than children in these classes. That is so and, true. And we can utilize them to say, okay, each student can have their individualized way of learning. Just mm-hmm. utilize the bodies in the room. That's a great point. Yeah, because you're right. Sometimes there are just an abundance of adults compared to students in, in some of the classrooms. Very true. And instead of butting heads on what strategy to try on that child, how about you just go with the child lead and divide and conquer? Exactly. Exactly. Gosh, that's such a good point. I mean, such a good point. Yeah. I I think about this one little guy. He was actually older. Um, He was uh, late elementary school and he was in the classroom. There were about, I think, five students in there. And you were right. I mean, now that I think about it, I think there were at least five adults because there were two. I think there was one child absent that day, but there were plenty of adults, but they were trying to do this calendar time. And the way they were doing it, it just wasn't relevant and meaningful to this particular student. So of course he had behaviors, you know, during this time of talking about the calendar and the months of the year and the dates and all of that. And so we changed it. Come to find out he had vision impairment that wasn't being addressed because he wouldn't keep glasses on. So there were all these other things, but we got him a calendar that right in front of him where he could cross off days. He really liked using markers. And just by making that shift and focusing him on this calendar here in front of him instead of the big one in front of the room, it was amazing how all of a sudden he was more interested and more engaged, you know, letting him pick which color marker he wanted. I don't know. It was just little things tweaking that, you know? So I do think there is a need for child-led whenever possible. Love it. Can you explain a little bit more about scattered skills and how it applies to play therapy? Yeah, well, I think that um, one of the most important things to always remember, especially when we're doing an assessment, you know, doing an evaluation of an autistic child is that they are going to have a scattered profile. You know, their developmental milestones are not going to be met in what we would consider to be a typical manner, you know? And so, gosh, I think about, you know, my son and I remember he was probably seven years old or so. And I remember thinking to myself, well, he's probably just never going to learn how to dress himself. My son has global apraxia. He has, I mean, it's called developmental coordination disorder. So he struggles motor planning all movements. And so I just remember being all worried that he's never going to be able to dress himself. He needed extreme amounts of help still, you know, in early elementary school. I'm happy to tell you at age 17, I mean, he's fully independent with dressing and showering. He shaves himself. I mean, stuff that, you know, I, I, I just couldn't imagine because he wasn't meeting his milestones. And that's what all the doctors and all the professionals were always pointing out to me at our annual visits was he's not doing this and he's not doing this and you need to work on this and he's not doing this. Instead of looking at what he could do, 
and building off of that, it was always reiterating what he couldn't do, you know, what skills he was missing and how we needed to go back and pick those skills up. So my motto with my son, and I, I tell this to every family I work with, forward is forward, no matter the speed right? So it doesn't matter how fast they get the skills. As long as the child is moving forward, they're not going to follow the same developmental path that neurotypical children do. It's just part of the autistic profile, right? There is this scattered acquisition of skills that we see from everything from self-help to communication to fine motor skills, gross motor skills, all of it. It's scattered. So to me, that's why the biggest disservice we do is when we start looking at developmental milestone checklists. Because autistic children are always going to look like they're just struggling so much. You know, they are struggling in some areas. All children struggle in some areas of development. But what we need to be looking at is what gives them their brain tingles. You know, what do they love more than life itself? And how can we uh, support and facilitate their development using those joys in their life, right? Instead of uh, looking at them as hindering development. So, so true. I got this question recently, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your response to it. Okay. And SLP came to me and said, I'm struggling to find the interests of this client I'm working with. No matter what I present to them, they're not interested in anything. The parents don't, can't even tell me what they're interested in. What would you do in this situation or tell this SLP? Well, I actually created a, I think it's four pages long. It's an interest and preferences inventory because I hear that a lot. Well, the kids, the kid I work with isn't interested in anything. Well, everybody's interested in something. The problem is you might be trying to look for something tangible. You're looking for a toy. You're looking for an object. You know, you're looking for something. Whereas one thing that is important to understand is that a lot of autistic children find more joy in the sensory aspects of life, okay? So they are more interested often in movement and in patterns of things and in, like my son has always had an interest in lights. And so he loves like a disco ball and he loves anything like little Christmas light, whatever, in different colors. So like sometimes you have to look outside of traditional toys and you have to look at sensory interests because I'm telling you, every autistic autistic child has sensory interests. So sometimes we need to go off of that instead of looking at something tangible. So true. Advice I provided was instead of having items on the table and asking them, like, just follow their lead. Well, yeah. Follow them in the room. Look at what they're doing and observing. Yeah. What are they listening to? What are their eyes gazing toward? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why observing them in their natural environment is the only way to truly figure out what their interests are, right? Is I call it skilled observation. So it's not just watching a child. I mean, it's a billable service to do skilled observation in the natural environment where you're taking very specific notes about what they gravitate toward, how they respond to, you know, different people and different activities and how do they respond to sounds and lights. And yeah, absolutely. So it, you can't follow a child's lead until you have skillfully observed them first. Like you actually need to be not an obstacle because I think what we feel our job is as therapists is, well, we have to intercede. I have to get in their way. I have to be in their line of sight. I have to give them a direction. I have to, no, no, no. Everything should start with skilled observation where you do not engage or interact. You should be able to observe them in their natural environment, whether it's a classroom, whether it's a daycare, whether it's home. I don't know where that natural environment is, but we've got to do a better job of doing unobtrusive skilled observation. And then we start painting a picture of, you know, who this child is. What does their sensory profile look like? I love it. I love it. Can you give an example of some goals that might be more appropriate for the autistic population? Absolutely. You know, and I think that it's so important that we don't think about 
neurotypical goals. You're going to have to, when you start writing neurodiversity affirming goals, you have to come at this from a different angle. So one of the things that I'm a big proponent of, and I think all SLP should really consider is I like to start goals with when given unrestricted access to multimodal communication, like everything should be given unrestricted access. So we shouldn't necessarily have separate goals like oh, we need a communication goal, right? Like everything we do is communication. So we'll give an unrestricted access to whether you call it aided communication or multimodal communication. Child communicates current emotion during a sensory motor experience, meaning they should be able to communicate to you whether I'm filled with joy, whether this makes me unhappy, whether this is frightening to me. I don't need it to be spoken words. I should be able to have a multimodal communication interaction with this child to know how they're responding to sensory motor experiences. That's how we're going to know if this is a preferred activity for them, right? Given unrestricted access to multimodal communication, child self-advocates during playtime. So the ability to self-advocate is to be able to deny to be able to protest, to be able to express overstimulation, to be, right, the ability to self-advocate. I think we sometimes, we poo-poo that. We say, oh, you can't tell me no. I'm sorry. Yes, he can tell you no, right? So we need to be able to, we should be writing goals for self-advocacy. And I think that when it comes to play, we have always had this idea that the child should play a certain way. And so when they don't, we want to stop them, right? We want to stop them from playing that way. No, we want to follow their lead and join in their play, right? Uh, like my son's play, I wish I could tell you, I mean, I still to this day, his favorite toy his entire life has been those little colorful sorting bears. You know, they're little plastic sorting bears that you're supposed to sort by color. He has still to this day, he's 17 years old. He has a tub of these plastic bears in his room and he still patterns them. And they don't appear to be a pattern that I can recognize, but they're often in twos and they are dispersed throughout his room. He has this castle in his room. He's never played with it the way I thought he should play with the castle, but he organizes. He's very interested in patterning and in the visual um, aesthetic of play. So he needs to be able to tell people, don't touch my bears because I'm like other kids would come in his room or his sisters would come in and try to move them. So self-advocating would being able to say, don't move my bears, you know, and and it's not that he doesn't want to share. It's that there are certain items that we have to understand are used as self-regulation tools for autistic children. And those are tools. They're not being used as toys. I think the lining up and the patterning, which almost every autistic child does, you know, if another child comes and messes that up and we say, oh, you need to learn to be more flexible. Well, that was fine if if this was actually something he's playing with, but he's using this to self-regulate, to keep from having a meltdown, to be able to um, uh, remain in this really stressful environment. So self-advocacy is a big one. Why should he change and the other child not? <laughs> well, that's to me. And this is, this goes into the ableism that we are trying to overcome. This idea that the neurotypical experience has historically been deemed the preferred way of being human. So if you deviate from the neurotypical you know, way of playing, for example, then you need to change. Well, no, no, no. Part of, of autism acceptance is recognizing that we need to seek to understand each other, not change each other, right? But it starts with, with understanding. The third one I'll throw out there that I think is important, I think all SLPs are dealing with this to some degree, is child will seek out safe ways to achieve oral input during playtime. Because we have so many of our kids who are chewing on toys, chewing on things that should not, you know, are not safe for the mouth. 
So being able to provide what I call a biter bucket, just a, I just get a sand pail, you know, from the store and write Joey's biter bucket or whatever. We put it in there, things that are safe for the mouth because we don't want them chewing on the blocks that are community, you know, play property or things that aren't safe to chew on. So finding, uh, writing a goal for seeking out safe ways to achieve oral input is to me a really good one. So I have, you know, lots of, of thoughts on, on writing play goals, but I, I just think we have to go back to, it's not about staying on task for three minutes or like one of the ones that we tend to write in early intervention in the home environment is child will play while the parent does chores nearby, meaning child will entertain self, right? While the parent does chores. Well, I'm not going to say it has to be for three minutes or five minutes. I don't know how long it takes you to do your laundry or cook dinner, but what we want is for the child to be able to entertain themselves with their own, you know, toys and objects that they're interested in while the parent does chores um, near them. So I always try to, you know, kind of move away from uh, goals that are about staying on on task for a certain amount of time or finishing um, a toy once they start it, you know, like a puzzle or, you know, a shape sort or things like that. So, so, so true. This is such great advice and examples that I know everyone listening can relate to clients on their caseload, maybe clients in the past, maybe they were struggling with. Thank you so, so much, Carrie. Where can everyone learn more about you and everything you have to offer? Well, the easiest way is just go to my website, uh, carrieebertseminars.com, and you can follow me on social media. I'm most active on Instagram, carrieebertseminars. So I think those are the two best ways. Uh, so anyways, thanks for uh, having me, me chat with you, and I am looking forward to the retreat. Thank you so much. And if you found this Halloween treat extra special, make sure if you haven't already signed up for the speech treat in November, head to speechretreat.com to claim your spot. You want to learn more from Carrie. You, I know you do. And I always end my episodes with a joke because jokes are just a great way to build rapport <laughs> with our clients. And so I have a Halloween one for us. Why didn't the skeleton go to the prom? Ooh, why? He had nobody to dance with. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carrie. We're going to have all of Carrie's links in the show notes. So make sure you head over to that once you are done driving or whatever you are doing right now. And until next week, everyone, stay out of trouble. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. It means the world to me that you're tuning in each and every week and getting the jolt of inspiration you need. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at my website, speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss any future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys. <laughs>